Welcome to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kaplan, founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners, a retained executive search and board advisory firm headquartered in Philadelphia. I am excited to welcome back today's guest, Bill McNabb. Bill was our first podcast guest when we launched this series, and I'm grateful that he's agreed to share some more wisdom with us all. Bill, of course, is the former chairman and CEO of Vanguard and the current director of IBM, United Health, and several other organizations. He's an internationally recognized governance guru, and I am delighted to have him back with us. Alan, it's great to be back with you. Thank you for having me. Bill, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about uh, the NACD report on the future of the American board, which you co-chaired with Sue Paul. It's an incredible read, and I know you're a, a passionate advocate for, for great corporate governance. But what was the main reason you got involved with this project? Because it had to be very, very time consuming with you and the committee to come up with these 10 points and this seminal body of work. Talk to us a little bit about how that came about and and why you thought it was so important for your time. Yeah, you know, um, I had done a fair amount of work with the NACD over the years, um, either through Drexel or the Milstein Center in New York as part of Columbia or Wharton uh, governance group. So all three of them have ties to the NACD. So I had been on lots of panels and parts of lots of discussions around governance. So I have a, an affinity for the group, if you will. I really admired the work there. I think when our book came out on talent strategy risk, the, you know, the new TSR, around governance and around sort of our view, you know, my co-authors and I, our view of future of governance, that was a little bit of a catalyst for them approaching me and saying, hey, would you consider co-chairing this Blue Ribbon Commission? And for me, the timing of the commission was really... Uh, in a, in a lot of ways, perfect because you know Business Roundtable a couple of years ago came out with its statement where they introduced this concept of stakeholders versus shareholders, which actually is not a new concept. And you know, again, if you read Friedman carefully, he talked about it in the day. But you know that whole debate, which we've seen play out in the press around shareholder versus stakeholder primacy and so forth. So that was obviously a catalyst. ESG is actually a subset of that, but with all the proposed regulation around ESG as you know part of that stakeholder versus shareholder discussion, so that was a catalyst. The pandemic and watching how boards had to to change the way they operated during the pandemic to you know really be good fiduciaries and good stewards of their companies that was a catalyst you know the social unrest that you know sort of in, in a lot of ways the George Floyd murder was the, the seminal event there but there were so many other things that brought out the question of you know what's the you know how do CEOs and boards respond to specific issues again you've seen that play out on both sides of the press in terms of what you should or shouldn't do but when you add all those things up, so BRT, pandemic, social unrest, ESG, all these factors, to me, it's sort of the question that's really underlying all of that is, uh, what's the role of a corporation in society going forward? And as boards of directors contemplate that, their role is really pretty important. And you see this playing out in, you know, lots of the data, um, Alan, as, you, as you're really um, aware, you know, Edelman um, runs a trust barometer. That's interesting. Today, the institutions most trusted by people are companies, not academic academic institutions, not certainly not government, certainly not other, you know, even other really prominent nonprofits and you know, all the other types of organizations you might think would be at the top of the list. Companies are at an all-time high. And what that means is employees 
really want to know what their companies think about important issues. So for me, this idea of what's the role going forward of companies in society was the driving factor as to why I wanted to get involved, because I think boards really set the tone there. And it was uh, the NACD assembled a really interesting group of people. It was very diverse from by every dimension, you know, traditional certainly uh, looks at diversity in terms of gender, ethnicity, and so forth. But even more important in a lot of ways, real diversity of experience. You had people who had spent a lot of time in boardrooms and you had some people who actually had never been in a corporate boardroom. And that kind of breadth of experience was really, I think, a very positive thing. And we had some really uh, very rigorous debates as a result. And it was no easy task to sort of navigate, but we did. And I think the report came out quite differently than people anticipated when we went into the project. Well, I think it's fair to say that those of us who are active in the governance community are grateful to the framework that you and Sue and the commission put together. Quite a thing, something to make you think about for sure. Do you have two or three of those 10 principles that resonate the most for you or you really feel like need the most attention from boards? You know, it's a great question, Alan. I would say it depends, um, which I know is not a great answer, but, you know, different companies are going to find different principles really uh, are more or less important to them because of where they are in their own journeys. If I had to pick one, I would pick the first, which is purpose. And one of the things that, you know, the word purpose, again, has been bandied bandied about in the press a lot. And people think it's some airy kind of, you know, fluffy set of statements. The way we define it, if you read it carefully, is anything but fluffy. It is why do you exist as a business? Who are you trying to serve? What are your competitive distinctive advantages and so forth? That purpose, that, you know, to me, it's answering the question, why does this business exist? I think it's really important. And, you know, when you read a lot of mission statements, they don't actually get at that. They they talk about what the company's trying to do and how it's trying to do it. I think if a company can't say why it exists, it's actually lacking. And we went through this at Vanguard, by the way. You know, again, we're not a public company, but we had a very long mission statement that, you know, was sort of imprinted on my DNA in 1986, right, when I joined the company. And it was long and, you know, directionally, I think, really good, but it didn't actually answer the question why. And and actually, it was a bunch of our young leaders during my time as CEO who said, let's do something about this. And they went off and came back and said, you know, we think it's really simple. Vanguard, you know, I'd say, why does Vanguard exist? And their answer was to take a stand for investors treat them fairly, and give them the best chance for investment success. Really clear. And when people broadly throughout the company would hear it, they'd sit up a little straighter, they'd walk a little prouder, because it was like, okay, we're going to take a stand. We're going to be out there doing what Jack Bogle promoted for decades, which is the investor comes first. And we're actually going to, though, make their experience better than anywhere else. It was very clarifying. So when I read other people's mission statements or purpose statements, I look for that kind of clarity. So if I had to like get boards to focus in on one thing, if you don't have that right, all the other stuff is probably not going to work as well as it could. And so that's probably where I would start. Uh, on the 10 principles, one that, that jumps out at me based on our practice is the concept of board refreshment. We still have so many clients that even sizable public companies where there are too many weak links on the board or too many good people whose skills have atrophied or they've been sort of out of the game too long, even though they may have been a really good contributor, a really smart person, 
and, and we still struggle to nudge our clients along the spectrum of maybe you need to start to think about, you know, self-assessment and eventually peer assessment because we have this, you know, too much behavior of, you know, Supreme Court lifetime appointments on boards. And, and I find it a little frustrating. Thoughts on, on board refreshment, board composition dynamic? You've just stated the problem very eloquently. Um, that is exactly the issue. Most boards aren't good at it. You know, they rely on age to sort of manage it. A few boards have gone to term limits. Both of those are, again, in my humble opinion, inadequate. They don't help you really get to the issue that you're describing. So board evaluation is key. And most boards, historically, that was kind of a check the box exercise. And again, to be blunt about it, you know, you go, you'd go around the room and you'd say, how are we doing? Oh, we're doing great. You know, and everybody was very happy. The best boards I see actually bring in outsiders every two to three years. I think three years is a good cycle to really do a rigorous evaluation of how people think the board's working. And if you take that to the next step and you say, the outside evaluator says to each board member, and who contributes, you know, really the most to this? What's really interesting when you do that, a very short list of people come up constantly. And it's really, there's usually great consensus around that. So um, to me, that kind of approach is really helpful. The other thing I've seen, and this is really early days, but um, one of the boards with which I'm involved is taking a very holistic approach. And so evaluation is a big part of it. And then there's some high-level metrics that we actually monitor as a board. We don't have an age limit, but we have a suggestion to board members that once they hit a certain age, they start thinking about, is it time? We don't have to set a term limit, but we want the board to have an average tenure of a specific range, which means that if we have some a couple of folks who are you know on the longer end, we need a couple of folks who are relatively new. And what's interesting is if you manage to those metrics, you actually get a pretty natural refreshment cycle and you get an opportunity to really be constantly thinking about, are we fit for purpose? And the purpose being the future, not the not the past. It's early days. We'll see how it plays out more fully, but I'm I'm actually really encouraged. And I think if, if, if this works the way I think it's going to work, it may be something that becomes much more broadly uh, acceptable. Certainly in every boardroom I'm in, whether it's private or public, the discussion about board refreshment is actually um, happening in a pretty rigorous way, which again, even five years ago, that wasn't the case. Well, I certainly agree with your view that age is not a criteria that is really appropriate. Term limits, as as you said, 5 or 6% of Fortune 500, S&P 500 companies use them. It's a very small percentage. And I've been in boardrooms with 65-year-old directors falling asleep and 80-year-old directors who were sharp as attacks. So you know, the only way to really get at it is some, you know, kind of formal or informal assessment process. And I like what you said about benchmarks for, you know, median tenure and, and that sort of thing. I, I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think we have a lot of work to do still on this front. But, you know, I think the more companies are serious about governance, better it is. I just think a lot of directors don't want to do any kind of robust evaluation or peer assessment because they don't want to be exposed as maybe not being on top of their game as much as they used to be, or they just don't want to give up the seat. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, that's where, you know, again, if you think about it, though, you know, most board members are pretty accomplished in whatever fields they were in, and they would not tolerate any of that with their own management teams. And, you know, so in a sense, it's applying the same rigor to board composition and board capabilities as it is to management, you know, capabilities. And I just think you can't live in both worlds where on one hand, you're really rigorous. And the other hand, you're like, it doesn't matter. Like, 
it does matter and and you have to have that same level of rigor around the board as you do around the management team and you know I, again i think it's coming but it's slow and again there there are some really strong board leaders out there who are beginning to make some progress on it and i i think you'll see that those are companies that will really thrive from a governance perspective well bill McNabb, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today thanks alan you've been listening to the talent pool podcast i'm your host alan kaplan from kaplan partners if you'd like to hear more from our guests or learn about our firm, please visit kaplanpartners.com. Thank you for joining us.